Welcome to Turnpikers, the show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech scene. We're your hosts, Luke Beatty and Danny Newman. Information about this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Welcome to the fifth and hopefully not final uh, episode <laughs> of Turnpikers. Uh, we have Chris Glodet, who is a, a longtime friend of both Danny and I. He's one of the best product people in our fair cities of Denver and Boulder. And I'll let uh, Chris introduce himself, tell us about what parts of his life he wants everybody to know about and how he got to where he is now. Fire away. Look, you guys, first of all, thanks for having me. And on behalf of the community, thank you guys for putting together Turnpikers. I think we've all realized that between Denver and Boulder, it's time that we put down our touchscreen devices and really come together. And you guys are facilitating that. I do have one question before we start, and that is about the name of Turnpikers. Like, the term piker is an expression for somebody that just kind of mails it in or is like a 9 to 5 or Johnny Punch Clock. Is that part of this, that we're pikers because we're just talking about this stuff instead of doing our real jobs as well? Or, or is it literally just talking about the turnpike? Like, is that an intentional it's thing? It's the symbolic concept. You know, you're a little bit younger than I am. Highway 36 was always referred to as the Denver Boulder Turnpike. Got that. Okay. Yep. And that's where it begins and ends. That's it. Yeah. That's it? Okay. We're not calling people pikers. You, you will not find anybody saying anything negative about anybody on this yeah. show. And if you want to start doing that, We're then, do then, that. It, then episode five will be eliminated from the, from the roster. No, I think we go dark on this one and see what it does to the ratings. And okay. I know you guys don't need any help in that category. And that's right. definitely not what it's about. Okay. But, uh, All right. I also wanted to ask about the souvenir, or not souvenir, but I guess the the branded um, clothing, like where are the t-shirts coming from, and can Under Armour participate, of course, in sort of putting the best technical fabrics in front of the Turnpiker logo and getting this stuff out there? Sorry, Turnpikers. I, I don't know what Danny's opinion about kind of, you know, startup swag and that kind of stuff is. Uh, it's all wacky sunglasses these days from what I'm seeing. It's yeah. all high color sunglasses. I, which... I, we've tried to keep this a sponsor-free environment to avoid a lot of influence. We've had a ton of people in the last month and a half come to us asking if we want to be sponsored, if we want to hold it at their office, if we want to do it as a part of some, some big event. And the answer has always been no. Yeah. Let me be clear. We would charge full price. Like there would be no. Oh, okay. I'm trying to sell you guys some shirts here. And right. we, we can buy all the Under Armour stuff we want at Walmart. So <laughs> your hookup is 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 not necessary. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, fire away. Okay. Uh, You're also a Denver native. Yeah, 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 yeah. Grew up in Denver. Um, got no, it. you didn't. You grew up in Aurora. <laughs> grew up in Southeast Denver, <laughs> Aurora, Eagle Crest High School. Um, I took one computer, I went to Colorado College, I took one computer science course there. Actually, let me just take a step back. My dad bought a Mac, he was an early adopter. And so when I was 10 years old, my dad had like an early Mac. And he bought a, uh, a basic capital B programming language book. And he brought it home and he told me that if I could program one of the things in there, which effect effectively at that time was for a 10 year old, transcribing all of the code that was laid out in the pages and just hoping not to typo anything and then hitting return, that he would give me 10 bucks. And so I transcribed the Lunar Lander program, which if anybody considers themselves an engineer and hasn't built Lunar Lander, you're a complete fraud. But that's where you're landing on the moon and you're adjusting the thrusters by entering like a decimal value and like trying to not blow your spaceship up. Not unlike actually like what happens with SpaceX. Like a lot of times the result is you come down a little hot, your rocket tips over and blows up on the surface of the moon. Anyway, 
did that and went to went to Colorado College. Was not particularly inclined towards software at that point. I took one computer science course. I dropped it because I got mono. I couldn't finish it. After college, uh, went to work for a big consulting firm where I was summarily thrust into an environment where I had to write code and had no business doing that at the expense of many large telecommunications clients. <laughs> but I, I learned on the fly and, and got good enough to fix bugs and do some damage and sort of create horrible solutions to not very complicated problems and did that for five years. And then got into startups. I did my first startup in the UK. My former manager at Accenture called me up and said, you want to move to London for a couple years? I was thinking about going to law school, which in hindsight, I'm really, really glad I ended up doing the startup and not going to law school and um, was like employee number seven at that company and then did that for two or three years, came back to um, the U.S. And that's when I really got involved in mobile. Like I, I was really excited about mobile technology. I got involved at the local startup with a guy named Brian Levin who um, runs Perky Jerky here in town, probably would be a good guest for this show. I know you guys both know him. Um, but he was doing a location services company, so it was all about building mobile apps that had something to do with location. And what year is this? This was like 2006. Yep. And um, that was a great business idea. Worked with Danny on a couple things on that and learned a ton and realized I was really passionate about mobile and also realized that it was the very early days of mobile and mobile was going to be a huge thing. And at that time, we were building... SMS and mobile web apps at that time, and also some stuff called Brew, which was like what you had to use if you wanted to launch on Verizon and, uh, and early versions of Java and stuff. And then smartphones happened, which kind of like did away with that whole business because that was predicated on using carriers for location. Like at the time, if you remember, you couldn't really get location. Like some phones had GPS. The networks could locate all the phones because through 911, you had to be able to locate the phone through the carrier network. And we were trying to proxy that technology to allow developers to build location-aware apps. So that was what we were doing. In the process of that, I got in touch with Matt My Fitness because at the time, Matt My Run was a website that uh, was a great place for runners and cyclists to go, Matt My Ride as well, to go plot out on a Google map where they were going or where they had been and get distance, elevation, calories, build a workout log, all that sort of stuff. But riding or running with your phone wasn't a thing back then. And so... With the technology we had, I talked to Robin Thurston, who was the founder, and Kevin Callahan, who was the co-founder, and said, hey, what if we could... Robin's a, a Denver native as well. Yep. George yep. Washington High School Patriot. Yep. He'd be a good guest on the show. Um, good friend of ours. And I said, what if we could locate phones? Like, what if people could run or ride with their phone? And what if people did this in the future? And we could just ping their phone and plot it out on a map. And then when they got back, we could deliver them this report. Like, here's your workout. Here's what you did. Here's how many calories you burned. Wouldn't that be cool? And they said, yeah, that'd be really cool. And we got to modeling it. And at the time, the carriers were charging 25 cents per location fix for coarse-grained, like, inaccurate locations. So if you did a, a five-mile run and we wanted to ping you every 20 seconds or 30 seconds to have any level of fidelity around your run, it was going to cost, you know, 30 bucks to, like, see your run. So we kind of figured that was going to be challenging, that make, there might be, like, five people in the world that would pay 30 bucks to get a visual of their run. But the technology evolved quickly, and um, iPhone happened, and App Store happened, and with useful networks, we had one of the first uh, 100 apps in the App Store. It was called Snowcater, and it was a location-aware app for skiing and snowboarding. So it did, like, snow reports. We tapped into these webcams that the resorts had, and then we built a custom mapping thing. At the time, there was not even Google Maps. You couldn't even use Maps in an app. You had to roll your own kind of map kit 
And we did that, but with these special ski resort maps. So you could pull up where you were on the mountain if the mountain had connectivity, which again, back then, not a lot of them did. And you could see where you were on the mountain. So we launched that. It was pretty successful, you know, for for the early days of the App Store. I think at the time there was maybe two or 400,000 iPhones in the market. So the market was tiny, but there was much less competition on the app side. So we were one of 10 apps in the sports category. So it was awesome. Like we were getting great distribution relative to the market. But, you know, on Verizon at that time, there were still 80 million brew handsets. So we were still missing out on a huge chunk of the markets. So we're making this bet that iPhone was going to be huge. And unfortunately, with that business, we were just a little bit ahead of the market. Had we had the funding to stick with Snowcater, it would have been a small business today because unfortunately, there's only like five people a year that actually go skiing. So we would have had all five of those people on the app. But in the process, I connected with the Matt, my fitness guys, where I ended up going next. And they were, you know, they had the foresight to be one of the first 200 apps with Matt, my run and Matt, my ride in the app store on iOS and Android. So they made a big bet because they were bootstrapped at the time. They had to take people off the website, which was growing dramatically and retool them and bring in contractors and try to get these apps together as quickly as possible. And so my job was to come in and take these apps and really make them the best fitness tracking apps in the class. So they raised a series A round in 2010 and I was part of the first class of hires after that. And so I got to bring in some of the other mobile folks from our team at Useful Networks and our charter was really clear. It was like, take these apps which are okay and make them the best possible fitness tracking apps. And so we put our heads down and just did that. And we had such great experience from the Useful Networks days with mapping and location. Awesome team of people we brought over, um, Jesse Demmel, um, Stu Blanford, some other people. And we really tried to kickstart that thing and uh, grew from there. So, and then Under Armour acquired Map My Fitness in 2013. So that's been my life for the last two years. And we just launched uh, a product with Under Armour called Healthbox which is a fully connected suite of products to manage all aspects of your health and fitness, sleep, fitness, activity, nutrition. We launched a connected running shoe. We launched, we're launching some headphones that take heart rate, uh, wireless headphones that take heart rate and spit out that data, you know, into your workouts. You don't have to wear a strap anymore. And so now it's been a, a heavy dose of building on the internet of things side and connected devices, which has been a nice, um, a nice evolution of the category, I think, and like great experience for me and for our team to get that stuff to market. So that's sort of been my story. What year did you say? 2013. It was the acquisition happened. Yeah, 2013 was when uh, Under Armour acquired Matt My Fitness. You raised how many rounds of financing with Matt My Fitness? Uh, it was kind of unconventional. Technically, there were three. So there was like an A round from Austin Ventures. We moved our headquarters to Austin. There was a B round, which was mainly AV, um, a milestone venture partners out of New York participated in that as well. And then we took a, a C round, which was like a more of a strategic um, five million bucks from Casio because we were going to help them build this connected watch like right at the very end. So they were like they were only an investor for like six months before we sold the company. How big was the team when you guys sold? We were just over 100 people, huh. like 70 in Austin and about 30 in Denver. We still have about 30 in Denver. Take a second to talk to us about, you know, I think we have a, a shift recently, which is we had a lot of software folks building connected health products and, and they were at first dialed into people's phones and their smartphones and that whole already uh, held devices. And now there's this whole new world where everybody's building their own devices and their own collection of devices. And you guys just launched a... Uh, a whole suite of things, including a scale, a heart rate monitor, and uh, a wrist wearable. How has that changed everything that you now need to be in the hardware business? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, <clears throat> it is, it's a little bit of the Wild West right now. There's some consolidation happening in the category. So, you know, Under Armour bought Matt My Fitness and Demondo My Fitness Pal. That helped clean things up a little bit. We're trying to get a consistent singular ecosystem that we hope can be the de facto ecosystem for connected health. Uh, some parallels would be, you know, the battle for the connected home, right? We see these ecosystems forming around Nest and other people like them that are trying to build the de facto ecosystem. You got compatibility issues on all levels, right? You got compatibility issues on the RF level with are these things Bluetooth or some other thing. You got compatibility issues on the mobile OS level. You got compatibility issues on the partnership level, who's willing to work with who, who's going to be closed or open and at what layer. You know, connected car will probably be another battle, uh, another battleground for that ecosystem. We're trying to build the connected athlete ecosystem. So we're a very open platform. I think when we first, we've always integrated with as many devices as possible, but we started to realize that a lot of the guys who are the leaders in building connected devices were also gonna try to own the ecosystem. So they weren't gonna make it easy for us to build a great connection with their device. Like they might've had a great device, but they're also trying to build you know, the cloud and the mobile app and the synchronization tools and the interface with the doctors and everything else. And so um, we're trying to clean that up and create an open ecosystem where I think we, we were put in a position where we, we sort of had to launch our own devices to have the level of usability and the point of view of having these things work really well together as a system. You can still come into Under Armour, you know, UA Record and connect your Garmin running watch and your Withings um, Wi-Fi scale and your polar heart rate monitor. Like it'll still work, but you go through that process, it'll take you, you'll have to create three different accounts. You'll have to auth all of them together. They'll sync at a certain interval and it's difficult to figure it out and consumers can't. So with our system, you can connect all these things in under two minutes. Your grandma can do it. We made it super simple. The data's all there. They all work together. And we sort of had to do that. Um, but it's going to be a while before these things shake out. There's a ton of investment going into the category, which means that companies are starting up all over the place with devices or new app solutions. And I think, you know, hopefully we've taken a leadership position and we can start to coalesce more of the energy towards our open platform. At least that's our vision and try to get consistency because at the end of the day, the fragmentation issues are really, they're hurting the users more than anything. Like anytime somebody has a bad experience with this app and this device or can't get this device connected, they end up with a sour taste in their mouth about using technology and fitness in general, which is a bummer for you know, all of us basically. And at the end of the day, we are sincere about trying to help people get better, try to help athletes get better. And when the technology gets in the way, that's, that's devastating. So that's kind of a description of what's going on in the ecosystem right now. We've got kind of all these different apps, all these different devices. Under Armour obviously is uh, primarily an apparel brand, or at least originally. Do you see kind of the technology merging? Like, are, is, is this all going to be integrated? What's the future look like for all of this? Yeah. So I think we're also at a point in time, like we call it the stagecoach period, because, I mean, stagecoaches, despite their prominence in our history, were, I guess, only around for like a decade, like a very short blip in time. And it could be that wearables per se are the same thing because our vision is that the technology should just be a part of the footwear and a part of the apparel. And we see the sensors getting smaller. We see the battery life getting better. Why shouldn't the technology just be in the cuff of your shirt or certainly in the shoe? Like that's why we're excited about the connected shoe. It's there. So it may take two years. It may take 20 years. But I think our vision is that the technology will disappear. And the idea, you may still 
where wearables for certain applications or activities or use cases where it makes sense, but you shouldn't necessarily have to wear something on your wrist if you don't want to, to track your motion during a workout, for example. So we might be in a point in time where that's going away, but it's definitely our charter, our division, Connected Fitness, our charter is to transform um, Under Armour into a technology company first and foremost, into digital products across the board. And uh, secondarily is to, to help bridge this gap between a time where you got to use smartphones, you got to use plastic devices into a world where all of this is lit up in your clothing. So you guys have a shoe now. Yeah. And that's probably the first iteration of that? It's the first, yeah. It's our first connected shoe. It's called the Speedform Gemini. It's record equipped, which is our designation that it works with the UA record ecosystem. But yeah. Which is, to be clear, part of the... Map my ecosystem too, right? That's all in one, and then also the recent acquisitions, right? So that's all, all, all pushing data into the same platform. Exactly. Yep. And the shoe does what that a plastic wearable doesn't do. Uh, well, you other than tracking steps on a more academic level. Yeah, we. I mean, we were opportunistic with it, so. Um, first of all, it made sense for it to be a running shoe. So the reason for that is the, the state of sensors today is we can get great data for running. We can get pace, we can get cadence, we can get distance, we can get duration, obviously. And all of those things we can activate automatically inside the shoe. And we don't have to have any recharging, we don't have to have any battery replacement. It's just part of the shoe. So we were able to design within the constraints of a shoe. Which is that one of them that you're wearing right there? This is, this is not. This is the slingshot. Because you um, don't run. <laughs> Actually, if you want to friend me on um, UA Record, you can look at my fitness history. There are a few runs in there. Um, but yeah, we wanted to design something where the user didn't have to think about it. And so running was a great application for that. Uh, the sales have been awesome in the first couple of weeks, ton of great feedback on it. But the cool thing is, if you don't want to be bothered with the technology, which has always been our vision, you can go for a run, you can leave your phone at home, come home, and when you're in proximity to your phone, it's going to automatically sync. You'll get a report, you know, you'll get credit for it. It'll count against your workout history and you don't have to fiddle with the technology. You don't have to change one behavior. You can just do what you do today, which is put on your running shoe and go. If you want to pair it with the app and get real-time stats or pair it with the wearable, you can get more accurate real-time stats to monitor your pace or set goals or get audio feedback about where you are relative to your pace or distance goals or do interval training or those kinds of things. But if you want to just ignore the technology and go run, you can do it. And that was that was a big part of the plan for that project. Is that tracking GPS as well, or do you need your phone for that? Uh, if you have your phone with you, we'll kick in a GPS mode. It uses an accelerometer, but it's heavily calibrated. So we're not just like using a steps and then stride length calculation. We're actually using the motion, which lets us get super accurate. In a lot of cases, it's more accurate than GPS due to you know GPS bounce in urban areas and things like that. But it'll use GPS if you if you pair it with your phone. The churn issue is a huge issue with the wearables. What is, what's the latest thinking at Under Armour and at Fitbit and all these other places that I think you're obviously familiar yeah. with? You know, it seems now that everybody has a drawer full of these things. Yeah. Uh, but yet people are still picking them up. Yeah. Um, is that something that is not really a problem or is that something that you think is really a problem? Um, and is the shoe a response to that? Like you said, that way you don't have to change your habits. Yeah. I mean, are we going to get more of them or are we going to get less of them is your guess? Well, I would, I would pop the stack on that question one level to say that churn is a huge problem in mobile content and mobile applications in general. There was a great article yesterday, I think it was like Andrew Chen or someone, but it was just a bunch of great data about the retention issue, right? And roughly speaking, for most apps, um, you, after day zero, 
you're only going to see one in five users on day one, and it gets worse from there. And that phenomenon, I think, has bled over to wearables to an extent. But I would also say that um, there is definitely a smartphone upgrading phenomenon going on here as well. So on our platform, we see a ton of repeat purchasers. Like We see people that had the first generation wearable XYZ, and then they may have churned a little bit, but they were the first people to upgrade when the next generation product came out. So in the same way that we all now have five iPhones sitting in our drawer, which is something I want to ask you guys about, um, we see people upgrading wearables. So it is, it is for sure a problem, and we have a bunch of strategies to address it. We feel like it's incumbent upon us as the provider to provide enough meaningful insight to engage you and help you improve and help you meet your goals um, that the wearable is lacking a call to action. Like by day 17, you sort of know what 6,000 steps feels like. You definitely know when you did a workout, you know when you slept well. How do we actually make more sense of that data and give you things to do and tell you what to do next in an intelligent way? And nobody's doing that. It's what we call getting beyond the bar graph because every wearable is paired with some app that is just giving you yet another bar graph of your trend over the last 30 days. And that's interesting for a little while. But what is the next, um, what is the next evolution of that and how can we provide more value? So that's where we're focusing a lot of our efforts. And battery is an issue. But battery is an issue with everything. Yeah, it's... It's huge. If you look at when people churn, it's almost always at the end of a battery cycle. So when we designed our wearable, we were really, I mean, that's why the shoe, we wanted the shoe to not have, you don't have to change the battery. Like we designed it where there's almost no way that the physical life of the shoe will exceed the battery life. Um, but with our wearable, we really wanted to make it so you get at least five to seven days. You know, people in this kind of demographic that buy this sort of stuff, there's a lot of high household income. There's a lot of travelers. There's a lot of people that are on trips or moving around or staying in different places. And with this one, I travel a lot with it. You can go all over the country and not have to worry about it, charge it once on the weekend. We also focused on optimizing for charge time. So you can charge it in under 20 minutes. So it's not like you have to set it down overnight or anything like that. And for a device that's tracking sleep, you gotta have people being able to charge it in the day. Like a lot of the, a lot of the top smart watches have a charging cycle that requires you to charge it every day and charge it overnight. And that makes it sort of untenable for a sleep device. It also forces you to carry a peripheral charger, which is a huge problem every single place that you go if you want to get the con continuity of the experience. So those were things that we, we thought about when designing it, for sure. Who's your primary market? Are you guys kind of the high-intensity sports and fitness or is it kind of casual, you know, step counter? Who's your main audience? You know, I think with something like this, I mean, the sports marketing philosophy 101 is you build products for the elite, right? Like, you know who the guys are that associate, they're associated with basketball shoes. Obviously, everyone thinks about the most popular basketball shoe of all time is the Steph Curry by Under Armour. We build products for Jordans the- Jordans are definitely not popular, we, right? We build what was that? Who? Yeah. Jordan Spieth? No, the, his shoe is very popular as well. It's actually more of a golf shoe, but you build products for the elites and the weekend warriors among us will see that and realize if it's good enough for this person, it's good enough for me. So there's part of that, like, I was out in, in Baltimore yesterday with Michael Phelps. He's using our products. He had a ton of great feedback on it. We're really serious about getting feedback from the Under Armour elite athletes and making this something that they think is good and is credible for them. And our philosophy is if it works for them, it's going to work for everyone else and the problem will sort of solve itself. But we know from having an open platform, from having millions and millions of activity trackers connected in, this phenomenon skews a little bit female. It skews a little bit overweight. Uh, it skews a little bit older. 
And so our opportunity is, you know, the Under Armour core demographic skews a little bit more male today, skews a little bit younger, skews a little bit more athletic. It's more of a performance improvement than it is about like weight loss per se. So we had an opportunity to take a point of view on things that we're going to help you. It's a little more athletic than the conventional sort of activity tracker model. What was the most interesting thing that Michael Phelps told you yesterday? Oh, God, there was so much. I guess I guess the biggest thing was how honest and refreshed he was. I'd never met him before. I've read all the things that everyone else has read. Um, and he was very like open about the fact that he's done things in the past. He wouldn't change any of it that he has always worked his ass off and that's how he's gotten these results, but that he was he was never 100% going into any of the previous Olympics. He, whether it was like an injury that he had or a lifestyle thing or just lack of preparation or focus or whatever it was, he was never 100%. And when he committed to making his, you know, final, the 2016 Olympics, his final Olympics, he went all in. And you can see like the laser focus on the guy. All he cares about is his sleep, his fitness, his activity, his nutrition, his training, and being prepared for it. And it's just, and then like, you know, obviously the guy is like a physical specimen. So like we got to watch him do this workout and his strength and coordination and agility and flexibility, like range of motion is, is amazing. So it was, it was cool. But I would just say his, uh, his honesty was super refreshing and he's just such a, he's almost got this like Yoda like quality where he's got this like sense of Zen and peace about him where he's gone through these tumultuous times. And what he would say is he knows himself better now than he ever has, and he's more comfortable in his own skin. And it's just, uh, the guy's only 30, 31 years old. And it's a lot of these athletes that you meet are that age that have gone through these extraordinary lifestyles are not necessarily grounded, are not necessarily have reached that level of maturity that he has. And it was, you know, he was oozing from him. Let's talk about Austin. Yeah. Under Armour's tech headquarters is in Austin, and then you guys have a big presence here as well. That's a city that is sort of in the same kind of um, bucket that Denver and Boulder is as far as the tech scene and all of that. There's more venture money there probably than there is here, although Austin Ventures is probably not uh, as active as they once were. You fly back and forth constantly. What is your sort of editorial analysis of those two tech startup communities? Uh, there, I think there is a fair amount of similarity, I, but I think there's more energy in Austin. I think that Austin also, I, I'm interested to hear your guys' point of view on this too. I think Austin probably is over-indexing against Denver in terms of national perception as a startup place. Like I think there's more traffic between Silicon Valley and Austin than Silicon Valley and Denver, for example. Like I see more people relocating between those places and more conversations going on between companies in Austin and the Valley. Um, but I think there's some similarities in terms of the market size. I Austin is also, I think it's probably growing significantly faster than Denver. Like I started going there in 2010 and it's almost like unrecognizable now compared to how it was then with the number, with the amount of build, the amount of traffic, the amount of companies, the amount of startups, the amount of energy. It's really been an amazing thing to, to witness. But what do you, what do you guys think? Because I know you guys have both spent a significant amount of time in Austin, and like you guys agree with that assessment. Generally, I would say, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, especially on the growth side. I mean, been out there pretty frequently for the past ten years, and it's just bananas. Uh, feel like Denver's kind of you know started that over the past few years, but uh, yeah, from a startup perspective, you probably have a little bit more 
insight into that, but it definitely feels like Austin's on the uh, tip of tongues in the startup uh, kind of world at large. I think, you know, last year at South by Southwest, Under Armour opened that new digital headquarters and built that building and and really made that kind of investment. And I think we have now a couple people, Uber, who's going to effort to do that here. That seems to me to be the most different. I mean, that's a real investment, yeah. right? And they were very aggressive about saying, this is going to be our tech headquarters. We're going to build a building. We're going to hire a bunch of people. And it's the sort of guys around the physical plant, right? It's like colleges and things like that. The bigger they look, the bigger they seem, and then the perception grows from there. Yeah, You see a lot more of that going. In the Austin Ventures days, they had the huge high rise in the middle of downtown. Like, there's just more physical presence around the uh, investment and around the premise-based experience. Uh, South by Southwest obviously helps. I, I don't really know that I feel like there's the number of, of mid-level companies here, as we've talked about in other conversations here in Colorado, that you see there. Yeah. I mean, I think to the point of turnpikers, um, okay, let's look at the ingredients that Austin has that we don't hear. So they got a college town, right? And as as Under Armour and Matt My Fitness, we were able to build a great recruiting pipeline out of UT for like young CS majors and other people design that were going to help us out in a way that we were never able to do with CU or DU for whatever reason. So that's an opportunity um, as we pull Denver and Boulder together. Like I think having the university right there in the town is like a huge advantage. And then no question that South by Southwest is a huge contributor, right? And we have really no equivalent of that for the Denver Boulder um, community. And we maybe we could maybe I mean, you could argue it either way. Now, I think a lot of people have sort of become a little bit jaded or they've had enough South by Southwest for one lifetime, maybe I or maybe it. events in general. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hear more and more of that. But I don't know, it would be cool if there was some kind of equivalent in Denver because there's no, there's really nothing like that. And we do have a, a lot of unique things to say nothing of the fact that it could be a boondoggle ski trip for all these people that could come in from out of town. You guys should set that up. Yeah. 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 An event. Turnpiker event. Yeah. Events. Everybody needs to have an event. So I guess we'll we'll have a we'll have a turnpikers event, and we'll probably be on the turnpike. Yeah. uh, Maybe at one of the new toll booths. Uh, During rush hour. Yeah. During rush hour. Uh, Talent in this area. You obviously have, have big teams of devs and designers and infrastructure people. Can you get people easier, better, faster, stronger people in, in Austin? Or would you say easier in Denver or pretty outside of the university? If yeah. You remove the university yeah. pipeline. Yeah. Um, I think we've we've been fortunate in both locations. I think when you work in something like fitness, right, you get these people that or if they're if they happen to be really good at their craft or even not really good at their craft but they're really into fitness which is a lot of people and they find a way that they can make money doing that they're going to seek you out so just by being part of this um by being part of a sports and fitness kind of company like you get those it's like people like music yeah exactly so who what what developer what designer what QA person what product person that's even remotely into fitness wouldn't rather come work on a consumer fitness application than I mean, almost any alternative, right? Or if they were into music, whatever. So we've had that advantage. So we've always had, we've always been fortunate to have uh, great people. Um, but we've focused most, I mean, the Denver office, we've sort of kept at a certain size. So I can't speak much to talent acquisition. We've been opportunistic around certain like really tough spots like iOS and Android engineers that we've been able to to pick some great people out of the local market here in Denver. 
But most of our growth has been in Austin, and we've managed to build a really incredible team there of people at all levels. The junior level people coming out of UT, picking people out of startups that are not great or not a great fit for those people. And then even senior level people out of places like Dell, you know, tons of awesome people out of places like that that want to come work for a smaller company or work on something more consumer friendly and we get our pick of the litter. So uh, now, now as part of Under Armour with the growth story, um, we get a ton of amazing talent uh, inbound and it's just a matter of like figuring out who the best people are and what's the best role for them and finding like the right team and the right spot for them. Does the uh, Denver office versus the Austin office, is this kind of solely focused on one portion of something or is it kind of just crossover and you just happen to have a Denver office? It's a mix. I mean, both of them are, are roughly 60% engineering. Um, but yeah, it's a mix. Uh, we've kind of intentionally tried to keep it that way because we know we're going to have, you know, co-location and virtual situations as we grow as a company. So we don't want to get ourselves into geographic silos. So it's, we got people on my team that work on UA Record in the Denver office. We got a bunch of people that still work on the Map My applications. We got a few people that are in uh, the media side of the business working on sales or account management. So it's it's really a mix. Outside of Under Armour and your your growing career as a comedian, which we'll dedicate a significant amount of our remaining time to. I'd like that, yeah. What other stuff have you, I know you speak at some events around here and I know you advise some startups and what, so what else is, what else is going on that's interesting to you? Uh, you know, um, we work together with a guy named Steve Baker who's working on a, on a, a startup called Brand Folder here in town. It's awesome to be involved in that. It's been a great um, idea and a great to watch him like grow that essentially from zero through Techstars to where that is today. So. I love um, trying to help those guys out as much as possible. Um, I'm certainly, you know, interested. I talk to a lot of different startups and try to contribute where I can because I think there's still this idea that there's still this like naive hope, and I get it. Like I have this hope in a lot of different ways about various areas of my life. But like, if I just build a mobile app, like if I just build a mobile app, you know, if I just launch a mobile app, like something's gonna happen. And like it's not, and like I can save people a lot of time by having that frank conversation. I I enjoy it. Because you're I, you're one of the best wet blankets <laughs> ever. <laughs> uh, I think there are so many interesting and creative strategies to get into mobile today, whether you're a big brand or a small company or whatever. And sometimes it is an app, but it might not be the app that you think it is. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's doing something else. So I love talking to. Um, companies of all different sizes and working with like local entrepreneurs to try to, you know, advise on those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, that keeps me busy. But honestly, I wish I, I'm trying to spend more time in Denver because like you said, I grew up in Southeast Aurora slash Denver. I'm interested in helping grow the community here, but my job's taking me to Baltimore and Austin and San Francisco like all the time right now. So it's one of the big challenges I have for myself in 2016 is how I can participate more in the kind of the Denver startup community. Where do you see your next thing? If you were to start something right now, what would that probably be? So, okay, so back to, <laughs> like everyone else, I have a million stupid ideas, but I've been noticing more and more that my house is filled with old iPhones. So like we have this- Filled with what? Old iPhones. Old iPhones. So I started selling, when I would upgrade or crack my screen or whatever, I would sell my iPhone back to Gazelle or whatever. It was like 250, 300 bucks. It was great. I tried to do that like three weeks ago and they offered me 25 bucks for my iPhone 5S. So that market of refurb iPhones and buying those old iPhones is gone like 
I would rather frame my iPhone and hang it on the wall than get 25 bucks for it or give it to my kid to play games with or whatever. But we're all sitting around now with these freaking supercomputers packed with all of these sensors that are sitting in our houses that could do all sorts of things. And like, we're still going out and buying, you know, drop cams and crap like that. And I'm like, when is somebody going to put all these phones to work? Because like, there have to be millions and millions and millions of phones on a daily basis being decommissioned in our homes. And tell me if you guys have heard of a product or have an idea or have seen anybody doing anything interesting with those phones. Because they're just sitting in our drawers. Give them to your kids? I don't know. So I would love to take like something like that, which would tap into mobile, Internet of Things, and sort of find like, and also like, Find something that makes use of the fact that at this accelerating pace that we all live in, we're leaving behind all this crap. Like we're creating all of this junk. So I'm, I'm thinking about um, projects like that and a million other things. But I love Under Armour. Like I'll be honest, like working with Kevin Plank, he the guy is a, a total visionary. And Robin Thurston, who's the map, my founder, is one of my biggest best friends and mentors. I still work really closely with him. So I'm super happy and I'm given a lot of like entrepreneurial latitude in what I'm doing. But I definitely also miss what it's like to walk in with a team of five people all focused on a simple mission where you can literally take your company from point A to point B in the 12 hours that you spend working on it in one day. Like that's, that's awesome, right? And no matter how amazing your big company is, there's just some certain realities about being able to do that that, that are, are limited. So nothing specific to share at this time. All right. Well... When we have you back, we'll expect a yeah. we'll expect a, a full yeah. pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to us about the comedy career. So let me just preface that before he <laughs> changes it into a different topic. Chris is. I've I've received several text messages from Chris at random times. I'm usually in the air or traveling, and it's something goes something like this, which is, "Hey, if you happen to be downtown, I will be." on stage at the Comedy Works in the next 15 to 20 minutes if you can make it over. That doesn't work with too many adult schedules that I know of, but I, I was able to make it once. Yeah. Uh, it was a sold out house, it was very successful. <laughs> I have, uh, I recorded the event on my telephone. Uh, where's that going? Yeah. <sighs> Do you have do you have a, like a, a few minutes you could share with us on on some some stuff you're working on? That's the problem is that like w once first of all as soon as anybody understands you're involved in that <clears throat> immediately the the presumption is that you think you're funny. Oh, like you think you're so funny that you're going to like That's put people through your thing. Yeah. <laughs> Second is that you, at any point in time in any context, could like just start dropping comedy, and that's also really challenging. But the third thing is, I, like, I've realized, like, so I did it, like, three times. I did it, like, the Comedy Works has this new faces contest, which is great because you can go and you get, like, five minutes to do your thing. And it's, like, a, it is a packed house. It's awesome because all of the ten comics that do it that night bring their friends and family because the person who gets, like, the loudest cheers is, like, one of the factors in the voting and see if you move on from the ten. Coincidentally, I have not moved on from the 10 on any of my three attempts, but that's because people just don't get me yet or whatever. I'm that's operating. because none of your friends showed up. <laughs> yeah, that, that too. Um, but it's cool. But what you realize, and maybe there's a lesson in here for all of us, is that like, when you try to be a hobbyist at something, like you're in there competing. I'm a guy that you know likes to be funny and write down funny stuff on the airplane while I'm flying back to do the thing. And you like to think that you could just go up there and be Jerry Seinfeld. And like... 
your fantasy is you're going to go up there and like start draining three pointers and get discovered by the scout and everything else. The reality is that the guy who isn't necessarily the brightest um, and maybe isn't even that hardworking, but just happens to have put more work into this than you by going down to frickin' Lion's Lair or the Squire Inn and playing to seven drunk guys in the corner has had enough reps and enough feedback to tune their material, which also might be way worse than your material, to weed out the crap and to get the good stuff to the forefront. The analogy for startups is like, uh, you know, um, lean development and getting customer feedback early and all those sorts of things. But it, you see it so obvious in comedy because the guys that have closed the feedback loop, even that have just done it three times at Squire Inn, are so much better than the guys like me who come out there and their material has only been tested by their own brain or maybe by their wife or by their drunk friends at the Broncos game or whatever. And it's obvious. So like <laughs> my, my hit rate... <laughs> My hit rate is about 33%. Like, I go out there, the three times I did it, I had, like, three bits. And, like, each time without fail, like, one of them did pretty well, one of them was, like, mediocre, and one of them was terrible. And when you happen to get it in the right order and the good one's at the end, it feels pretty good. When you lead with the awesome one and the last one is terrible, you feel like you sucked. But then when you see the guy go out there after you and make jokes about weed and cops eating donuts and just crush, you're <laughs> like, all right, like I, I got to go back to the drawing board. Wh which of your bits has been the most successful? Is it the, been the, it, the, the Denver Technological Center bit? Because that was, that was my favorite bit, which was that the Denver Tech Center is not any sort of a tech center for anybody in the world except That's... for the people who made the signs. Yeah, that's a great bit. And that's, that's another cool thing about it is when you have funny friends, so that's your bit. And when you have funny friends that aren't going to take their own material and publish it, like I'm happy to be the, the anthology of like funny shit. So you've been talking about the, how the misnomer of the tech center for years and that it's not in Denver. There's not really any, <laughs> it's, the Denver there's tech not center. really any particular technology going on there per se. There's like, or, or I don't know if anything's ever been invented the Red there. Robin headquarters, you know, there's a couple John Elway dealerships and it's not really centralized either. It's probably one of the most sprawled out, uh, centers on the world. Yeah, we could argue that a renaming or maybe a rebranding project would, would be more spot on for that thing. But yeah, that did well. There was a little Fiddler's Green bit in there as well that, that did some damage. But it's it's hard to say. The other... Also a part of the tech center. <laughs> yeah, also a part yeah. of the tech center, exactly. I think Fiddler's Green Clearly. is the tech yeah, center. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, the other hard part is, to the point of this show, you know, we've kept this pretty clean, right? And it's easy to get a laugh by quote unquote going blue, which is like dropping F-bombs and talking about uncomfortable and gross stuff. And I, I like doing that, but you know, you watch, there's this great thing with um, Seinfeld, Chris Rock and Louis CK. And they talk about how like a lot of them view that as like sort of hack, like Jerry Seinfeld will never drop an F-bomb. And it's like the highest art form for him to go out there and keep his material totally clean and just kill people the whole time. Whereas others- That was, that was Bill Cosby's motive yeah. too. He was yeah. always running clean. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't really buy that because I like. I think that's great if you can do that. But there's a lot of guys that have plenty of great clean material, but also have amazing, like really irreverent or like profane stuff. And I think that's like takes just as much talent. The real, the real hack stuff that gets me is these guys that go up there, and I'm I'm not even kidding. I can't believe people laugh at this still, but they'll do five minutes about weed, and it's like, okay, we get it. Like we live in Colorado, weed's legal. Like we get that it gives you the munchies. We get that you drive slower on weed, and yet you will see 300 people falling out of their chair like a <laughs> Russell Simmons deaf comedy jam when this guy gets up there and makes a joke about weed. And that's where you get frustrated and you're like, well, maybe I'm just... Maybe I should go back and... <laughs> how'd, you get into the, uh, how'd you get into the comedy thing? Is it something you'd been wanting to do? And 
So you know how like you have these things that you want to do and you're like, they're ter some of them are terrifying and you're like, I'm just going to freaking do it. Well, with this, uh, I it was like, I kept calling and calling to get on for the new talent night, which is like Mondays and like this miserable affair. You have to call and listen to this like 17 minute voicemail and you call and call and call and call. And I finally just gave up on that because it was really hard. When they do the new faces contest, it was like the first 200 people to respond to this email, they're in and they're locked in and here's your date. And so I'm like, well, this is calling to me. And it just, it just sent it to me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it. And so I did it and I got the date and I got the time. And I actually, I didn't get the time. I missed it because I was traveling for work. I got the email saying like, you're on in 20 minutes. I'm like, oh crap. And so you're panicking. And I had this thing on my phone of like all the notes of like funny shit that I had thought of over the past year or whatever. And I'm driving down there looking at my phone, obviously the whole time and like trying to compile this material and you get there and then you're like sitting in the backstage and like I was so close to just running out of there. And like one dude did run out of there. Like people do run out of that environment. But um, the, the, the most terrifying part was that these guys, I go to the green room and they all know each other. They're like, oh, Ricky, are you going to do the bit about weed? Yeah, are you going to do your cops and donuts bit? And they're like all high-fiving and they're like, who are you, man? And I'm like, I thought this was New Faces contest. They're, they're like, yeah, it's New Faces, but that's not New Talent. Like, you want to be on New Talent if this is your first time. New Faces <laughs> is like local comedians that have like practiced a whole lot and done this a bunch of times, but you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to do this. But as soon as you get, and I also want to get over my fear of public speaking, not that I have some particular fear of it, but it's a great thing because when you walk out there in front of like 300 people and you're trying to be funny, like pitching your business idea or speaking to a group of a thousand people about mobile marketing or whatever, it's like, it's, it's a joke after that. I mean, once you can like do that, it's, it's so much easier. So it helps break down a lot of inhibitions, but there are like for... There are a thousand people that I know that are way funnier than I am. Luke being one of them. You might be too, Danny. Like, that would be way better at it if they would just get the sack to go do it, frankly. Right. So. Well, I, I'm, I'm, that, that sounds like the most terrifying thing. I was just going to say that too. That absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for coming on. What, uh, if, if people are interested in connecting with you, catching up with you, people that have a, uh, mobile uh, app idea they want to a, a mobile to app you. idea that they want you to just Shoot minimize <laughs> and 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 crush or if people do want to talk to you about connected health or location based yeah. stuff which are your expertise what's the best way for people to connect with Chris Glode? Uh, listen, I want people to DM Turnpikers on Twitter okay. because uh, look, I know how hard it is what you guys are doing how hard it is, right? And in the early days of something like this, you're not always getting the <laughs> feedback that you want. Yeah. And so I would just encourage everybody to support this program by following these guys, DMing them, give them feedback on what you like and don't like, and just give them some feedback. And if that means that you want to get in touch with me, they get, these guys can connect you with me, but... You have to go through us as your agent, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> That's convenient. I'm trying to drive traffic. Your, okay. Twitter is down right now because I just said that probably, so okay. you're welcome. All right. Well, there, there, there are a few people that listen to this. I'm very between easy. five to seven yeah. people. So if you have the Google, you can type my name in. It's spelled Chris G L O D E. I'm very easy to find. I get fined by 700 marketing tech um, software sales reps on a daily basis. So if you can't find me, you're doing something wrong. All right. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. It's Thanks, really guys. great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Turnpikers, a show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech community. You can reach us directly and discover more about the show at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter.
Please send us your questions, comments, and recommend future guests.